All right, we are going to be going over uh, a passage in Isaiah. It is a servant song, but I'd like to give a little bit of background in Isaiah first. I think it's helpful. Um, It's sometimes very hard to put all these things together. We read things in the Bible, and we don't really know how the different parts relate. And so I just want to give a little bit of background here. So Isaiah's ministry started in the year of King Uzziah of Judah, or yeah, in the year King Uzziah of Judah died, which was around 740 B.C. Uzziah had reigned for 52 years from 791 to 740 B.C. Uh, He started off well, but became proud and tried to offer incense to the Lord, and God had punished him with leprosy at the end of his life. Jeroboam II reigned in Israel during roughly the same period, 793 to 753 B.C. This was a prosperous time for both Israel and Judah. Both Egypt and Assyria had internal problems and were weak. So Israel had its borders extended farther than in any other part after the reign of Solomon. But then Tiglath-Pileser III took control of Assyria in 745 B.C. In 740 B.C., he conquered the tribes that were located on the east of the Jordan. This would be the Reubenites, the Gadites, the half-tribe of Manasseh. Assyria now threatened both Israel and Judah. And this is where we pick it up in the beginning of Isaiah. The first 39 chapters of Isaiah are concerned with the Assyrian crisis. In 734 B.C., Pekah of Israel and Rezin of Damascus invade Judah after King Ahaz of Judah refuses to ally with them against Assyria. In Isaiah 7, Isaiah gives Ahaz a message from God telling him to not fear Israel and Syria, but Ahaz does not listen. Ahaz decides to become the servant of Assyria and sends money to their king asking for support. Assyria accepts the offer and attacks. Damascus falls in 732 B.C. and Israel in 722 B.C. And this is the last of Israel. The people are taken away and they just become part of, uh, of another group. When King Hezekiah comes to the throne around 715 B.C., he refuses to worship the gods of Assyria as a show of loyalty, as Ahaz did, and a showdown with Assyria became inevitable. That showdown happens in 701 B.C. when Sennacherib places Jerusalem under siege. In Isaiah 37:36, God saves Jerusalem by killing 185,000 of the Assyrians. The coming Babylonian crisis becomes the focus starting with chapter 40 in Isaiah. Judah will not fall until 586 B.C. That's 115 years after Sennacherib's invasion. Cyrus, who Isaiah mentions by name in Isaiah 44 and 45, comes on the scene in the 540s when the Persians revolt against Babylon and conquer it. So when Isaiah writes about Cyrus, he's writing about someone who's going down, who's going to bring down an empire that won't exist until the Babylonians defeat the Assyrians in 612 B.C., 89 years after the invasion of Sennacherib, which I always find very amazing. God is merciful and gracious. So even as he's about to send his people into exile, he's already giving them a message of hope, of a restoration that's going to occur after that, already talking about the downfall of an empire that doesn't even exist yet. So Judah is headed for exile because of their idolatry, yet God gives them the hope of a future restoration before they're even exiled. In the later chapters of Isaiah, we see more and more hints of an even greater restoration, culminating in the final judgment in the new heavens and the new earth. So there are many messianic prophecies in Isaiah, and among them are four songs about God's perfect servant. In Isaiah 42, uh, verses 1 through 4, we see that he is God's faithful servant who will bring worldwide justice. In Isaiah 49, 1 through 6, we see that he is God's called servant, who will be a light and savior to the world. 
In Isaiah 50, 4 through 9, our passage for today, we see his obedience, suffering, and vindication. In Isaiah 52, 13 to 53, 12, we see his suffering for us in great detail, and that through him one becomes righteous. So this is part three of a long-running series on these servant songs. You may not realize that. Um, I preached a sermon on Isaiah 42, 1 through 4 back in 2018. I preached a sermon on Isaiah 49, 1 through 6 in 2020. So today I'll be preaching on Isaiah 54 through 9. I expect sometime in 2024 to be preaching on the last servant song. So mark your, keep your calendars free. All right, so our text today is Isaiah 50, verses 4 through 9. But just for context, I'm going to read all of chapter 50. So turn to Isaiah 50. <clears throat> All right, Isaiah chapter 50, starting in verse 1. Thus says the Lord, Where is your mother's certificate of divorce with which I sent her away? Or which of my creditors is it to whom I have sold you? Behold, for your iniquities you were sold, and for your transgressions your mother was sent away. Why, when I came, was there no man? Why, when I called, was there no one to answer? Is my hand shortened that it cannot redeem? Or have I no power to deliver? Behold, by my rebuke I dry up the sea. I make the rivers a desert. Their fish stink for lack of water and die of thirst. I clothe the heavens with blackness and make sackcloth their covering. The Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught, that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. Morning by morning he awakens. He awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. The Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. But the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who will declare me guilty? Behold, all of them will wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them up. Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant? Let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. Behold, all of you who kindle a fire, who equip yourselves with burning torches, walk by the light of your fire and by the torches that you have kindled. This you have from my hand. You shall lie down in torment. All right, so our text, verses 4 through 9, are the words of God's servant. We know this because of verse 10, which says, Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant? This is God's perfect servant that we see in the other servant songs. This servant is not Israel. We will see as we go through our text the contrast between Israel and God's perfect servant, who, as we know from many other passages, is the Lord Jesus Christ. So our outline today is the obedient servant, the suffering servant, the vindicated servant. So again, one, the obedient servant, two, the suffering servant, Three, the vindicated servant. So, point one, the obedient servant. So, looking at Isaiah 50, verses 4 through 5, reading it again, it says, The Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught, that I may know how to sustain with the word him who is weary. Morning by morning he awakens. He awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. The Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious. I turned not backwards. So, obedience starts with listening. That's what we see first. Right? 
If you're a parent, you probably have noticed how children can be incredibly good at hearing one minute and practically deaf a minute later, right? They hear very well when you're talking about something that interests them, right? You can be in the basement and you mention, like, maybe we should go for ice cream, and your kid on the second floor will hear it, right? But you walk up to your kid and say, go clean your room. And then hours later, you'll say, why didn't you clean your room? And they'll say, I didn't hear you, right? Even though you were right there, right? They have selective hearing. So the first part of obedience is listening. You have to listen to obey. If you don't listen, you don't know what to obey. You don't know what to do. So we see that the servant hears the words of the Lord God. It says in verses 4 and 5, He awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. The Lord God has opened my ear. His ears are open so he hears what God says. He is attentive because he wants to know what God says. He's not like the child who doesn't want to hear the command, clean your room. He wants to know everything that God says. Israel, on the other hand, did not listen to the words of God. Isaiah 42.20 says, His ears are open, but he does not hear. Isaiah 48.8 says, You have never heard, you have never known. From of old your ear has not been opened. Earlier in Isaiah 50, it said, Why, when I called, was there no one to answer? Israel had a long history of not listening to the word of God, and now God was judging them by hardening their heart. This is what God told Isaiah when he called him. Back in Isaiah 6, verses 9 through 10, it says, And he, being God, said, Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull, and their ears heavy, and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. So this lack of hearing, in part, was because of judgment on God. God had sent prophets years and years telling them the word of, of God, telling them to repent, and they had refused to hear. And now God had hardened their hearts so they couldn't hear. He had determined to judge them. We see the same thing in the Gospels. God had judged Israel's leaders by hardening their heart. The rejection of Jesus is a judgment from God. This is what Jesus says in Matthew 13, 10 through 15. Uh, then the disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered them, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, You will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and with their eyes they have, they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. <clears throat> so I urge you to open your ears to hear the words of God. In verse 18 of Matthew 13, Jesus says to his disciples, But blessed are your ears, for, or your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. And be warned, if you do not listen, eventually God will harden your heart so that you cannot Hear his words. So hear his words while you are able. Listening was not something the servant did once. First notice the phrase, morning by morning he awakens in our passage. Hearing was a daily activity for the servant. It is the pattern of life for the servant. Also notice the phrase, those who are taught, at the beginning and end of verse 4. We call people that who are taught disciples, right? These are disciples. So the servant is a disciple of God. He's not just listening 
to God's word. He is a disciple of God. Disciples don't just listen. They are captivated and interested in every word the teacher says. They want to memorize everything that their teacher says. They want to learn everything that their teacher is teaching. The servant wanted to learn everything he could about God and his ways. And this is what it should be for us as well. Discipleship is a process. Jesus was not born knowing everything that he was to ever know. In Luke 2.52, when Jesus had stayed behind in the temple um, after the Feast of the Passover, it says, And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. He wasn't born knowing everything he would ever know. Jesus learned just like we learned, but he had an ear to hear. He wanted to know all of the words of God. And so he was an astute student, and he studied God's word. We are not only called to be disciples, but to make disciples, right? The Great Commission in Matthew 28 says, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. Not go and get decisions from all people. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. We must constantly strive to be learning more about God and his word. This is what it means to have an ear as those who are taught. We should emulate Jesus and continuously grow in wisdom. All right, our kind of second sub-point is obedience requires action. Not only does it require you to be listening, but it requires action. Obedience is not passive. The servant comforts and consoles the weary with his words. This is the meaning of the phrase, to sustain with a word him who is weary. This gentleness we see in the first servant song in Isaiah 42.2, which says, He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. He was quiet. He's not loud and boisterous. What a contrast compared to the second service song where the servant says, He made my mouth like a sharp sword. We see both the gentleness and sharpness in Jesus' word. We see the gentleness in Matthew 11, 29 and 30 when Jesus says, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. But we see the sharpness in Matthew 7, 21 and 23, or 21 through 23, when Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So the servant is equipped to comfort others because he speaks the words of the Lord God. He couldn't be comforting if he didn't know God's words. That's true comfort, is God's word. We know that they are God's words because verse 4 says, The Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught. This should remind us of the prophet, like Moses, that God had promised to raise up. Back in Deuteronomy 18, uh, verses 18 and 19, says, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among my brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he will speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words, that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. The, the perfect servant is that prophet. Jesus is that prophet. Jesus spoke the words of God. He says in John 14, 24, Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. And of course, the Son is the very word of God, as it says in John 1. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. As I said, obedience is not passive. It requires action. We too must take action. As James says in James 1, 22, But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Right? Our goal as Christians is not 
to just passively try to avoid sin, right? We're not to live as monks, trying to separate ourselves from the world, trying to isolate ourselves in the hopes that we can avoid doing wrong. No, we must be doing good, and we need, we need to share the gospel with others. We must tell others what we have learned about God, right? All our learning is not for our, our benefit only, right? When we learn, we need to instruct others. We must make disciples, we must comfort and console the weary. We must help those who we can help, right? We're supposed to live actively. There's an act of obedience. James 2:15 through 17, James says, If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead, right? Certainly works do not save, but... but if you're saved and you have faith, you will do good works, right? That is what, that's the point of James. We must take action, but it must be the right kind of action, right? The action must be in accordance with what has been taught. That's why we need to listen, right? If we don't listen, we don't know what God commands. We can't do the things that God wants us to do. If we're not hearers of the word, we can't properly do the word because we don't know the word. So we need to know what God teaches in order to obey. But the servant did know the words of God, and the servant did act in obedience. It says in verse 5, I was not rebellious, I turned not backward. Right? The, the, the servant knew God's commands, and he obeyed them. He didn't rebel them. This is directly opposite of Israel, where it says in Isaiah 48.8, From before birth you were called a rebel. Right? Israel knew God's commandments, but they turned from them. They turned to idolatry, they disobeyed God, they did not do what they should have. But God's perfect servant did what he was supposed to do. He always obeyed God. <clears throat> so this brings us to the second point. The suffering servant. This is in verse 6. Isaiah 50, verse 6. I gave my back to those who strike, and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. So we first we learned that obedience sometimes involves suffering. And this is not something we want to hear, right? We are very attracted to the idea of if we obey God and do what we should do, that we will only be blessed and that we only have good things happen to us. And often God does bless us when we do well, right? And certainly if you do wrong, you often feel consequences of that. But sometimes you suffer even when you obey. Uh, Because verse 5 tells us that the servant was obedient, we know that the suffering in verse 6 is not because of the sin committed any sin committed by the servant, and that it's not deserved. As Peter says in 1 Peter 2.20, For what credit is it if when you, are, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure? This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Israel suffered as well, but they suffered because of their sins. In the first verse of chapter 50, it says, Behold, for your iniquities you were sold, and for transgressions your mother was sent away. They were facing judgment and suffering because of their sin. They weren't suffering because of their obedience. They were suffering because of the judgment of God as a result of their sin. There are many examples of God's servants suffering even though they are doing what is right. We Countless examples, right? We think of Job, ultimate example. He suffered so that Satan's charge against God that Job's obedience had been bought could be proved to be false, right? That's what Satan said. Like, Job only follows you because you give him good things. If you take away those good things, he won't follow you. But that was not true. And then Satan said, Job only follows you because you give him good health. Take away his health, he won't follow you. But that was not true. Job followed God 
because he knew God and he knew that uh, knowing God is better than everything else in this world. And so he followed God um, even through the suffering. Abraham was 75 years old when God promised to make him a great nation in Genesis 12. But Isaac was not born to 25 years later. Uh, that long wait, what suffering and how hard it is to wait. I mean, just think of kids waiting for Christmas, right? It's impossible. You can't even get them to sleep in on Christmas morning because they're so excited that even waiting an hour or whatever is suffering. Abraham had to wait 25 years for the promised seed. And he was already old when it started. And he just got older and older throughout. <clears throat> Joseph spent 13 years as a slave in Egypt. He didn't know what was going on. Later on, he realized and knew that God had used him to save his family from the famine that was to come. But he didn't know that when he was a slave. He suffered even though he had done nothing wrong. David is anointed as the next king. And then he has to spend years as a fugitive from Saul, even though he had always been a loyal servant. There was no servant more loyal than David. And yet he had to be a fugitive, even though he was going to be the next king. Uh, how that must have, uh, I mean, how he suffered through that, right? Jeremiah has to live through the siege of Jerusalem. He's called a traitor and eventually thrown into a pit, even though he was faithfully proclaiming the word of God. Only two people believe and, and receive the message. Everyone else rejects the message of God that Jeremiah proclaims. Uh, and, and Jeremiah suffers, even though he was obedient to God. So and we see this. We're not even getting to the New Testament. We can go through Paul. Right, God tells Paul at the very beginning, after he, he sees, sees him on the Damascus Road, he tells Paul what suffering he's going, to he's going to have to have to serve God. Right, Peter, all the disciples, all of them suffered in obedience to God. And, and likewise, we may be called to suffer as well. That's just, um, it's part of life as a Christian. We should expect suffering. James says in James 1-2, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. He says when, not if, because we will endure trials. Jesus says in John 15, 19-20, If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Right? So we can expect opposition. We can expect hardship. The servant knew that he was going to suffer, and yet he still obeyed. Bracketing verse 6, the servant says in verse 5, I turn not backward, and in verse 7, I have set my face like a flint. Luke 9.53 tells us that Jesus has set his face toward Jerusalem. You see that determination. He was going, and nothing was going to turn him back. Jesus knew that he was going to suffer, and alludes to Isaiah 50, verse 6, in Mark 10.32-34. This was our unison reading today. I'll read it again. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed. And those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days he will rise. Jesus knew what was going to happen, but he did not turn back. He obeyed God and did what he came to do. Our second sub-point, the sufferings of the servant. So let's look a little bit more of how the servant suffered. <clears throat> this, the suffering of the servant seemed even clearer in Isaiah 52.13 to 50-12. through 12. So remember, 
2024, when I preach on that one, we'll, we'll see more about it. But just as a highlight in the little preview, uh, in Isaiah 52, 14, it says, As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance, and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. All right, and this is getting, we'll, we'll have... We'll look at another passage just a bit here. There were three aspects of the servant's sufferings. The phrase, I gave my back to those who strike, refers to a judicial act of flogging. When the servant says, I gave my cheeks to those who pull out the beard, this refers to physical torture. <clears throat> the phrase, I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting, is referring to personal humiliation. But this is beyond embarrassment. This is someone trying to say that the servant's words were not true. His hopes would not be fulfilled. His actions were in vain. And that his confidence in God was misplaced. It's basically saying your whole life is a waste. Everything you ever believed is not true. You've based your whole life on something false. Right? So it's more than just humiliation. We see references to this servant song in the New Testament, obviously. Um, Isaiah 50, verse 6, is filled in the crucifixion. We see Jesus being flogged in John 19, 1. We see the torture and humiliation in Matthew 27, 27 through 30. I'll read that. Uh, then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the whole battalion before him. And they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail! king of the Jews. And they spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And notice how they were mocking Jesus. They are effectively saying, you said that you were a king, but you are really a nobody. Right? And we see this with, with Pilate. Pilate put on an inscription on the cross, he's the king of the Jews. Right? The Jews wanted him to say, say he said he was the king of the Jews, but Pilate said, whatever. Uh, just writing, he's the king of the Jews. Right? So, and, and Pilate asked him, are you a king? And Jesus said, well, if I was he's not of this world, if, my, if I was a king of this world, um, I would act. Right? He, was, he was talking about the spiritual kingdom, the kingdom that was to come. So they all kind of focused on the fact that this claim of kingship and all said, you're not a king. Look at you, hanging on that cross. You're nothing. Your life was a waste. You're a nobody. The servant suffered in our place. We don't really see this in our song today. We see this in the four servant song. Um, like Isaiah 53, 5 and 6, it says, But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was a chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. John the Baptist, on seeing Jesus approach, said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In John 1, 29. Paul says of Jesus in 2 Corinthians 2, 21, for our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 9, 24-28, For Christ has entered, not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have to had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But that it, as it is, he has appeared once for all, at the end of the ages, to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. <clears throat> 
Excuse me. Paul in Romans 3, 23 through 26 explains, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just in the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Right? God is holy, and God is just, and sin must be punished. And so God couldn't just wink at sin. He couldn't just pass by it without doing something. But yet God is also merciful, and he wanted to extend mercy. And so to do that, the sin must, must be punished. And so Christ took on our sin. He took the punishment that we deserve. And now God can show mercy to us because Christ bore the punishment that we deserve. So now God can be just. He is just because sin is punished, but he can justify us. He can give us mercy through Christ. And this is how it works, right? The Bible tells us that we have all broken God's law and that the penalty that we deserve for doing this is eternal life in hell. Furthermore, the Bible says that there's nothing we can do to save ourselves from God's just wrath. But because God so loved the world, he sent his son Jesus Christ to die so that you might have eternal life. The promise of God is that everyone who sees their need of a Savior and trusts in Christ for salvation has eternal life. This is how it works. Jesus Christ took upon himself the sins and endured God's wrath on the cross for all those who trust in him. In return, they receive Christ's righteousness and are proclaimed to be righteous by God. If you have any questions about that, please talk to me or Jamie after the service. We would love to talk more about that. This leads us to our third point, the vindicated servant. Isaiah 50, verses 7 through 9. But the Lord God helps me, therefore I have not been disgraced. Therefore I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who will declare me guilty? Behold, all of them will wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them up. Right? The servant has a confident and fearless trust in God. Despite knowing, though, of the physical abuse and opposition that he was going to occur, he says in verse 7, I have set my face like a flint. And in verse 8, who will contend with me? Let us stand up together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. He has this confidence because he knows that the Lord God is with him, as he says in verses 7 and 9. He trusts that God will vindicate him. Compare this to Israel who needed to be encouraged in Isaiah 44.2, where it says, Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, Jeshurun, whom I have chosen. We should have confidence because the Lord God is with us as well. Jesus says at the end of the Great Commission in Matthew 28.20, And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. The author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 13.5, For he, that is God, has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we too can be confident because God is near. God will not forsake us. Our second sub-point here is the servant is vindicated by God. The servant is not ashamed. We saw in verse 6 that the servant would be the subject of personal humiliation. But we see in verse 5 that the servant has not been disgraced and would not be put to shame. Vindication is a legal term. Uh, meaning to support or maintain as true or correct, against denial, censure, or objections, to defend, to justify. So God is on the side of the servant. No one can contend with him. 
The servant's words and actions were correct and true. Christ was vindicated in the resurrection. Acts 13, 28-30 says, And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. And in verse 30, But God raised him from the dead. He raised him from the dead because there was no reason for him to remain. The penalty for sin had been paid, and Christ was righteous. In Philippians 2, 8 through 11, we read, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Hebrews 1, verses 1 through 3 says, Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Contrast these passages with the mocking of the Roman soldiers and the Pilate. They said, you are no king. But God says, he is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. Every knee will bow to him. Christ has been vindicated. We are vindicated through Christ. Paul says in Romans 8, 31-34, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who does not spare his own son but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Satan is the Hebrew for accuser, right? Satan, what he does is he accuses. He accuses believers before God, saying, he looks at and says, look at Mark. He's a sinner. He doesn't deserve your grace. He deserves punishment. Look at this person. Look at Jamie. He's, he, did, he lied last week. He did this. But Christ is at the right hand of the Father saying, no, my death covers that. Jamie is not a sinner. He is righteous. My works cover him. And he doesn't, we don't look at, we don't see his works. We see only Christ's works now. And so he is our intercessor, and we are vindicated through Christ. So the last sub-point, sub-point three, this, the servant will be victorious. When it says in verse 9, Behold, all of them will wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them up. The idea is that enemies of the servant will not last. They are transitory. Christ is victorious. Acts 2, 32-36 says, This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. We are victorious through Christ. 1 Corinthians 15, 54-57, Paul says, When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the immortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. 
So in conclusion, first be obedient servants of God. Have a desire to learn the word of God. Hear the words of God. Be disciples of God and seek to make others into disciples and obey God. Second, be prepared to suffer. Remember that the Bible tells us that suffering will come. Our trust in God will give us a confident strength to endure suffering. The more we know God, the easier it will be to trust him during a trial. Now is the time to prepare for suffering. One commentator said, in describing his own discipleship, the servant has shown them what God requires of all his people, not empty profession, but wholehearted, costly obedience. Thirdly, remember that God is with you. The world may declare that you are on the wrong side of history, but remember God is on your side. And if God is for us, who can be against us? No one. Let us pray. Oh, Lord Jesus, we just praise and thank you that you have won the victory. We deserve death and hell for our sins, but because of your great love for us and your mercy, you have saved us. You bore God's wrath in our place. And now we have, in exchange for our sins, we have received all of your good works. We have received your righteousness, and we are declared righteous. Not a righteousness that we have, but it's your righteousness. And we just praise and thank you. We just praise you, God, that you love us and you desire to give us all things, that one day we will dwell with you. What a great thing. We can't even imagine how wonderful and awesome that will be. But we know that is the greatest gift we could be given is you. And you have given yourselves to us that we might know you intimately. And we just praise and thank you for that. We do pray, Lord, that you would help us to be hearers of your word. Forgive us when we are stiff-necked and disobedient. Please help us, Lord, to, to read your word. And when we see that we have done wrong, to repent quickly and to turn back to you, Lord. Help us to uh, have open ears. I pray that you would open our ears so that we hear, that we obey your words, Lord. Help us to love your words. I pray that we would desire knowledge of you and your words more than anything else, and that uh, we would be faithful disciples. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to make disciples. I pray, Lord, that we would have a fervent desire to tell others the good news of the gospel, Lord, and that we would faithfully proclaim it to those around us. I pray, Lord, that you would be merciful to our, our family members and co-workers and and other people that do not know Christ, Lord, and that you might uh, save them by your grace for your glory. I just pray, Lord, that you would use us as a people to glorify your name, Lord. I pray that you would help us in all that we do. And we do pray, Father, that you would send the Son again. We look forward to that day when we see Christ um, and we are with him. And we pray that that day would be soon. Until then, we pray that you be glorified in all things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.